Well, turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. We are presently in a series called God's Good Design. And for those of you who haven't been around or you're visiting, um, this final message of the series, well, it may come as a little bit of a shock to you if you've not been around for all the other ones. But it's been a series on what the Bible has to say about manhood and womanhood. What does the Bible actually speak into about our similarities as men and women, but also our differences? And, and the truth is, I started this series with very high hopes. High hopes because I know that biblical manhood and womanhood, when properly understood, can truly change people's lives. It can change people's marriages. It can change people's homes. It can change people's families, people's relationships across the board. Understanding what the Bible has to say about manhood and womanhood can have a profound effect on each and every one of our lives. And then I also started this series with realistic expectations. Because I remember when I first started getting taught all this stuff, and I didn't like it at all. I was anti-it. I was not a big fan of it. And it wasn't just one message that convinced me. It was about six months of reading that convinced me otherwise. And so certain books I want to recommend to you, knowing that this can be a a difficult um, thing to get our heads around. Just five books that I want to recommend to you. First of all is God's Good Design by Claire Smith. Um, I know Claire. She's a Sydney cider, a really wonderful lady. I actually texted her this week to thank her for a book because I know it wasn't well received by everybody in the universe. Um, But I thank God for the way she wrote it and what she so clearly stated. It was, and it's an outstanding book, God's Good Design. She goes through all the difficult texts of the Bible. So 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14. She starts to unpack that along with Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's an excellent read. And another book called Different by Design by Carrie Sandham, a single lady who just, just writes a wonderful book on what biblical manhood and womanhood is in the blueprint from the Lord. And number three, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. That book isn't for the faint-hearted, but it's the one that I read first. It's just like reading an encyclopedia, that's all. It's it's long and it's big, but if you really want to bottom out, what does the Bible say about this? Well, we'll read that. So, for example, you know, there's often one of the things that that happens in in amongst scholars on this issue is what does the word head really mean? And so there can be this idea that head just means source. So, Wayne Grudem takes time to explain 800 different uses of the word head in Old Testament and New Testament and literature and why none of them mean that. But you're going to read through every one if you read that book. And number four, What's the Difference? by John Piper. A very small book, really outstanding. That's really where I base this message today. And then Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth by Wayne Grudem. Again, not for the faint-hearted, a little larger in nature, but an outstanding read again. Um, so if you're finding this harder, or you're just finding it easy, but you think, hey, I just want to get really read up on this. I really want to understand it. There's some books that will help you get a, your head around it some more. So I started this series with high hopes, but I also started it with realistic expectations. And as I said last week, I, I would never want our doctrine and understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood um, to define us as a church. I want us to be defined by Christ and him crucified as a church. It's the gospel that defines us. That's what unites us together. That's that's where we stand as sons and daughters. Not because we understand exactly the same things on every point, 
We stand together in Christ because we're sons and daughters of him, and that's only possible because of the gospel. And so Paul teaches on biblical man and woman at length. But whenever you get him on his main thing, his whole point is the main thing is the gospel. That's that which I consider first importance among you. I never moved on from the gospel. The truth is he did move on from the gospel several times to help us see how it applies. But in heart, he's saying the gospel is the main thing. And I want to make sure it's the main thing in this local church as well. I never want biblical man and womanhood to define us. But I do want it to be dear to us. It is one of our values. It's one of our values deliberately because we believe it's true and we believe it's being eroded in culture today. And so today I want to give my final message of the series. The title is this, Manhood and Womanhood in All of Life. We've looked at what manhood and womanhood is within marriage, the way that works, and then we looked at manhood and womanhood in the church Now I want to look at just very generally manhood and womanhood in in all of life. How does this play in? And for that, we need to go back once again to Genesis chapter 1. Ray Altland Jr. says this about Genesis. He says, why go all the way back to the first three chapters of the Bible if our concern is with manhood and womanhood today? Well, because as Genesis 1 to 3 go, so go the whole biblical debate. One way or another, all the additional biblical texts on manhood and womanhood must be interpreted in a way that is consistent with these, these chapters. For they lay the very foundation of biblical manhood and womanhood. And they do. And I trust over the last four weeks you've seen that. You know, wherever, everything we're basing on is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And when even Paul is talking about biblical manhood and womanhood, he takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so for this final message, I want us to read Genesis 1, verses 26... 27. This is the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way you've guided us through this series. Lord, I thank you that your word is not invalid in any place. We're not called to move off it or even walk away from it as if it's not something to be desired, neither are we called to be ashamed or embarrassed of it. Lord, this is your word, and you are our Father. And so, Lord, once again, would you help us then to bow the knee to you, help us to understand what you're saying to us. And, Lord, as your children, would we all be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that's so important to understand in manhood and womanhood is that to be mature in our masculinity and femininity, you don't have to be married, all right? It's a really important and necessary detail to understand. It's not like we just walk through our lives and we're sort of just gender neutral and then we get a ring on our finger and we're like, oh, now you're a true man, or now you're a true woman. The Bible doesn't teach that. That would mean that Jesus was never truly masculine, never got married. The Apostle Paul, when he didn't quite make it as a man, he never got married. 
Oh, clearly they were both fully masculine in every way. You don't have to have a ring on your finger to genuinely display mature masculinity or femininity for the glory of God. You see that as a truth running all the way through the Bible. And so 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians to act like men. Now, in one sense, he means all of them. He's talking about spiritual warfare and how they need to stand on the truth of God's word. But in another sense, he is particularly talking to the men there. The brothers among this local church. Dudes, when I go, bad things are going to happen. I need you to act like men. Now, Paul doesn't just say, hey, if you're married, act like men. The point is, generally, for all of you, you need to act like men. And clearly, he's got specific things in mind. He calls them to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, to be strong, to let all that you do be done in love, and to act like men. All of them. There's a part they all have to play if their gender is male. In Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, he then addresses women. He says, Older women, likewise, have to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. See, the Apostle Paul is very clear saying, hey, Titus, you're going to need to find some good, godly women in your church that are reverent to the Lord, that need to train younger women. He does not say, find older women to train younger married women. Train women. And so two of the things, obviously, are very specific towards marriage, to train the young women to love their husbands and to be submissive to their own husbands. But there's other things as well, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind. It is a general thing that older women need to train younger women in femininity, just full stop. Femininity doesn't begin when you get married. It happens in all of life. And in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27 that we just read, God is communing as the Godhead. It's a beautiful scene. It's the moment where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are talking to one another. They're in consultation with one another about what are we going to make. Then God said... Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we see very early on in Genesis 1 and then going into Genesis 2 that God made man and woman equal in their value and worth and dignity before the Lord. Completely standing side by side, both with dignity before the Lord, both with value before the Lord, both with worth before the Lord, both with ability to reflect the glory of God back to him. And yet as we see in Genesis 2, he made us different though, different parts to play. Just like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in essence, but different in persons, he's designed it so that he wouldn't just make us male and male, or female or female, but male and female, two different parts of the same coin, to reflect different parts of the Godhead back to him. And so you don't have to be married 
To be able to display truly masculine, true masculinity or femininity, you just need to be male or female, and you distinctly then have a part to play. And so here's the question that I want to examine then today. What does it mean then to be mature in masculinity or femininity for the glory of God? What does it actually mean? What does it look like to be able to display mature masculinity or femininity for the glory of God? See, the way God's designed it is very much like a beach volleyball team. You know, if two players go running on, it's not like both players go running onto the court and both say, I'm going to both play the right side. I'm going to both play the left side. Or we're just going to both play down the middle. No, you go running onto the court and you're going right and I'm going left. And then I'm going forward and you're going back. Because we complement each other. If we're going to win here, if we're going to go for the glory of God, we have two very distinct parts to play. And the Bible would teach that accordingly. Here we have two very distinct parts to play. And if we're going to mature in our faith and mature in our masculine to femininity, we have to understand what they are. So two points this morning. Here's the first. Number one, what is mature masculinity? And here's what it is. I have read incessantly for this series. Um, I've read as much as I can. (laughs) And you're trying to work out what is at the heart of it. And I think Dr. John Piper says it the best. In his book, What's the Difference? This is what he says. He says, At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Out of everything else I've read, out of everything else I've come across, that, I think, is the best. That at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationship. As man and woman go running onto that court, that's the part that I think he's meant to play, specifically. Married, single, doesn't make any difference. We're talking about in relation to a man's differing relationships. But there should be an instinct in him. And so I just want to unpack that with the remainder of this point of what, what is Dr. Piper saying there? And so look at it at the start, at the heart of mature masculinity. I mean, that phrase signals that the definition here is by no means exhaustive. Okay, it's not like this is the only thing it means to be masculine. There are lots of things about what it means to be masculine. When Paul says to act like men, he has other things in mind than just this as well, without doubt. But what I am saying is, at a minimum, the thing that makes us distinct, it is this. At the very heart of mature masculinity is a sense. I really love that choice of word as well. You see, that issue of sense, the thing that I like about it is is it gets to the heart of the reality that to be mature in masculinity, a man must not only be responsible, but also sense and feel that he is responsible. It isn't good enough to just know it. There should be something in him as a follower of Jesus Christ where instinctively he knows, that's what I'm called to. That's what I'm here to do. There's something in me that wants to, that feels that, that senses that, that affirms that in my life. The other thing I like about the word sense is it pulls back the curtain on the reality that, that a man could be truly mature in his masculinity and yet not actually be able to relate to any women at all. 
But if he senses it, then he can still be mature in his masculinity. For example, if a man's in combat, or if he's out at sea, or he's in prison, or he's on an oil rig, or he's a boarder in an all-boys school, there's no women around. But this word sense encapsulates the reality that nonetheless, though, if he senses that this is what I should be, so that when I am around women, this would be my instinct, and even when I'm not around women, I need to ensure that I'm making sure these values are true in my life. He could be not around women at all and truly still be masculine in the way he's going about his task. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility. I love those two words as well, responsibility. I believe a man truly understands and has a sense of this responsibility, a calling, a duty, an obligation on his life, a charge. See, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, both Adam and Eve have sinned, correct? God comes into the garden. Adam, where are you? He's not even looking for Adam and Eve. He's looking for the big lad because he was the one that was given the instruction. He was the one that was given the charge. He was the one that should have stepped in and said to Eve, stop. But he didn't. He completely failed. He failed in his God-given responsibility. And I think as men, we need to understand that we've been called by God to these things. He's given us this reality on our lives as men. He's giving us a calling and a duty and an obligation and a charge. And without doubt, Jesus is guaranteed that he will give us grace for all these things. But nonetheless, he's called us as men to a responsibility. And it is a benevolent responsibility. I love that word too. Benevolent simply means kind and tender-hearted. It's understanding that I have been called by God to a task. But for the reason for that is because God is being kind and tender-hearted towards women in my life. See, this does not leave then any room for chauvinism. It doesn't leave any room for mature masculinity to be self-aggrandizing authoritarianism or chauvinism or feeling superior. That's not the point at all. God's not saying, oh, you're a man. Oh, this is so wonderful at last. He's just saying, hey, I'm giving you the responsibility and I don't want you to abuse it. I want you to use it for my glory. And this isn't about superiority or authoritarianism. This is about understanding this is the way I made you. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility is the first thing. Is the first thing he should feel to lead. He should feel that sense of leadership, albeit in differing relationships at different times with different women, but there should be something in a man as male that realizes, I'm on. I'm stepping up to the plate. This is my responsibility before the Lord. Now, I'm aware that when we say words like lead, particularly words like lead, That can have very many different connotations and nuances and implications. And if we were to go around and say, what do you mean by the word lead? We might have a lot of various different answers of what people think that would mean. And so from one man to another, there's just just some things that I want to talk to us men about in terms of what this mature masculine leadership really is. I want to coach you for a moment, biblically, to understand what is this talking about here? Is the first. Listen, mature masculine leadership... 
expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others. That's where mature masculine leadership starts. It's not about, hey, I'm leading, check me out. It's about understanding. Yes, you're called to lead, which means laying your life down to serve others. That's the privilege you have in your life. You lead by giving everything to them. Mature masculine leadership expresses itself not in the demand to be served, that it's all about me, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others. We see Jesus uh, modelling this better than anybody. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 37, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Well, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They are just about to enter Jerusalem. Jesus has already told them that when I go in there, I'm going to die. They don't get it. They're the knuckleheads. We've been through that when we saw the Gospel of Mark. You know, they, they play the, the role of buffoon most of the way through the Gospel. They just don't understand what's really going to happen. So they still think that when we go into Jerusalem, you're going to become the king. You're the Messiah. You're going to take rulership of the nation, and we're going to be able to blot everybody out. And so when we go in, I want to sit your right, and I want to sit your left. Is that cool? And Jesus says to them, Mark chapter 10, verse 42, because, because here's the thing, that don't feel bad for James and John, okay? Because the other disciples got wind of what they were asking, and they were really upset with them. And they were really upset with them, because I want to sit at your right, and I want to sit at your left. That's what goes off as this situation happens. And then Jesus sits them all down, in verse 42, says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over him. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is leadership. At the very heart of what it is, it's understanding that it's not about me, but it's about me using my life now to serve others, giving my life away and my energy and my time and everything I have to serve other people. We shouldn't be surprised then when we get to Ephesians 5.25 and Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. He's just already informed wives that they need to submit to their husband and they need to have a fo be following their husband, have a disposition to follow him. And he addresses the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's saying, yeah, you are the head of your home. You are the leader of your home. This is what it looks like, laying your life down for your home in the same way Christ did. That's where leadership always begins. It's not self-seeking or self-serving. It's others-serving and others-seeking. Secondarily, mature masculine leadership does not presume superiority but gladly mobilizes the strengths and giftings of others. It doesn't assume, hey, I've just got it all together. In fact, it assumes quite the other and wants to mobilize then the strengths and gifting of others. See, no human leader is infallible. 
nor is any man superior to those he leads in any or every way. It just doesn't work like that. And therefore, a good leader will always take into account ideas of those he leads and beginning to, will very often even adopt those ideas as better than his own. See, one of the things we sometimes hear from men, particularly when they're married, is I just think I'm doing a poor job of leading. I just don't know the answers. No one said you have to have the answers. You just have to have the instinct to find out the answers. And some of the best way of doing that is by employing your suitable helper, your wife, to say, can you help me? See, good leaders mobilize the strengths and giftings of others. Good leaders, therefore, talk to others. I think one of the things we struggle with in our manhood often is profound pride. We think we've got it. And then even when we don't think we've got it, we go into Jesus and me mode, which is a Christian way of saying, I've got it. But the Bible talks a lot about seeking counsel. So Proverbs 1 verse 5, Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. Proverbs 11 verse 14, For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisors make victory sure. Proverbs 12 verse 15, The way of the fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 13, verse 10, wisdom is found in those who take advice. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. See, good leadership then doesn't assume superiority over lots of people. Good leadership recognizes, hey, I haven't got it all sorted out, and so I need other men around me to help me, and I really need my wife to help me. As a good leadership very often not only takes into account others' ideas, it often adopts them, realizing that's just better than anything I would have come up with anyway. Number three, mature masculine leadership does not presume the responsibility to initiate every action, but does feel the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. See, good leaders shouldn't feel the responsibility to have to initiate in everything. All right, that's not good leadership. If you have to take the reins of absolutely everything, that is a bad sign. But there should be something in a man that as a leader understands, I should be the one creating a pattern of initiative. That should be the norm. So if in our homes it's always our wife that's taking the initiative in prayer and mealtimes, she's getting the family ready and out of bed for church, she's constantly gathering the family for devotions, including you, she wants to discuss with you training and discipleship of the kids. She wants to confer over financial priorities because she's busy on Excel trying to figure out how you're going to make it for another few months. And she wants to talk over a few more recent opportunities that you've got in evangelism. If that's constantly her having to drive that, you are without doubt abdicating your role. There's nothing wrong with your wife initiating things. That's a good thing. But if she's always the one having to do that, you are not offering leadership. She is. Mature masculine leadership doesn't presume the responsibility to have to initiate everything, but it does reveal the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. And then number four, mature masculine leadership accepts the burden of the final say in discussions and disagreements, but does not presume to use it in every instance. 
See, there are times in life and in all leadership when the best thing you can do is not make a decision today. You need more counsel. You need more time. You need more time to figure through what the best thing is. And yet there are other times as a leader when decisions have to be made, whether that be in our homes, whether that be in the church, whether that be in a sphere, whether that be in work. There's times when we have to make decisions. And I think one of the challenges sometimes is when boys don't quite grow up properly, so they become a man, but it's what Darren Patrick calls a ban. You're still a boy, but just in a man's body. They don't want to make decisions. There's just a fear of making decisions, of calling it. But part of leadership, speaking from one leader to another, part of leadership is making decisions. You have to, and it can be challenging. And as a pastor, listen, when you're responsible for lots of people, you're very aware that my decisions count. You can feel a pressure with that that can be paralyzing, but you have to make decisions. There's a wonderful scene in Band of Brothers where at one point... Um, they're all, all, the, all this battalion are just going in and then the Germans are just coming at them and they have to retreat. And they look at the lieutenant and say, what do you want us to do? And the lieutenant is like, uh, um, uh. and they're like, sir, you've got to make a decision. You know, all the sergeants are gathering, we need you to make a decision. He's like, oh, I'm just, I'm not sure. Uh. And they're like, sir, we need a decision now, otherwise we're all going to be dead. And one of the other lieutenants pushes this guy aside and says, I want you to do this, this, and this. And they're talking about it afterwards amongst themselves. And there's a wonderful line in Band of Brothers where they just say that this lieutenant, he's not a bad leader because he makes the wrong decisions. He's a bad leader because he makes no decisions at all. I think that's true. There's a time when we need to wait in our leadership when it comes to making decisions, but there are other times when for the sake of the family or whatever it be, we need to make decisions. Mature masculinity involves all these things, brothers. It involves them all. This is what God's called you to in your manhood. This is the man that he's made you to be. Do you need him? Oh, yes. Do I need him? Without a doubt. But this is what he has called you to. Now, just so that we're clear, this does not mean then that women can't or shouldn't lead in any circumstance. It's not what the Bible is saying. So in the context of a home, the husband should be leading. He should be the head of the home. In the context of the church, pastors, as we saw last week, should be male. But there's lots of other things the Bible talks about where it's, it's clearly not gender-specific at all. You know, I thank God for people like Janelle that lead our kids' ministry, which means not only serving all our kids, but leading 55 people on that team, both men and women alike, that, that serve in our kids' ministry. I love that. She is the best person for the role, and I thank God for her. I thank God for my wife and for Meg in the way they serve in our women's ministry. I thank God for all of our group leaders. Our group leaders, we really model it on Aquila and Priscilla. We're looking for a, for a man and a woman to work side by side and investing into people for the glory of the Lord. I thank God for the way the Priscillas in our church play their part, a vital part, in seeing the leadership of our church in great width go forward. I thank God for the way many of you ladies carry roles in society. Some of you are assistant principals, some of you are team leaders, some of you are managers. That's great. Do it all for the glory of the Lord. The Bible is not saying, oh, don't do that. Not at all. When it's talking about family and God's family, that's two very different things to all of society. All the Bible says in all of society is you need to ensure that you do all things for the glory of the Lord. And whether you be a man or woman alike, you need to be as ambassadors in the world and make sure you're representing Jesus. 
So the Bible doesn't say that women shouldn't lead in anything at all, not in any shape or form. But what I am saying is that the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead. There should be something in him that goes, I'm on. So you might be in a room full of people, 20 people. You just can't decide what to do. Everybody's faffing about. That is not the moment where the men should just be playing Xbox. There should be somebody in there. If a woman does it, great, that's fine. But if no one's going to do it, there should be men in that room going, hey, I'm thinking we should do this. There should be something in us as men that has that instinct and responsibility to lead. But not only lead, to provide for. I read that from Dr. Piper this week, and I thought, oh my goodness, does this mean that every time you take a group of people out, you're paying? You know, is, is this the way it rocks? So you just, you know, singles lunches are just going to take on a whole new emphasis and with our brothers spending a lot of money every week. You know, is, that, is this the way it's meant to roll? And of course, no, that's not what he's saying. But here's what, he, here's what his point is. Albeit in relation to differing relationships to women, what he's basically saying is this. That if in a man or woman's life there is no bread on the table, he should feel it his responsibility to solve this problem. He shouldn't be leaning on his wife or his friend to, hey, we just haven't got any food. Can you go sort it out? There should be something in him that goes, I am on here. I think our generation has maybe lost that a little bit, but I remember to my parents and certainly my grandparents, that was a huge value. You, know, you had men working around the clock to provide for their homes. There was just something in their instinct and makeup that realized, I'm on. Well, that's still true to today. Genesis 1 and 2 we see that God made Adam to work the garden. Um, this was prior to Eve even arriving. And the whole point then when Eve arrived, it wasn't like, okay, you can work the garden now instead. It was still Adam working the garden and him helping in, in her helping in that way. But the whole point of him working in the garden in part was to provide for his family. It's something we see then in the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 5 verse 8 Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, then he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. For Paul, this is a massive part of what it means to act like men, to realize you are on. Now, once again, a short please note. This does not mean then that women should not work. You know, I think one of the things that unfortunately complementarianism gets labelled with is somehow it's preaching that women don't work. If you pay attention to what I've said over the last five weeks, I haven't mentioned that once because it's not in the Bible. Proverbs 31, the woman who loves the Lord, there's many factors about her and one of the things is she actually works. She was giving herself to work for the good of the home. So that's not an advertisement of how all women should work, but what it is to say is, of course it's fine to work. The issue just when we get married of whether we should work or not, it has nothing to do with um, the actual work. It has to do with motive. And so if a husband is the head of the home and saying, please don't work, I don't want you to work, and you're like, I am working, get stuffed. Well, there's bigger issues at stake than work. The fact is, he's your pastor, he's your head, so you need to respond to him. But if in discussion you're discussing it and he said, I'd love you to work, I think that's great, then go work for the glory of the Lord. That has nothing to do with complementarianism at all. But there should be something in a man that understands if there's no food on the table, this is my problem. I'm on. I've got to sort this out. 
and also to protect women. Now, no one ever pushes back on this. There's not too many wives that, if there's a noise downstairs that wants to be egalitarian in that moment, he goes, well, I'll go, I'll go. No, there's not usually any arguments at that point. Um, there's something in, in our instinct and even in our culture where we understand, oh, yeah, that's fine. We'll take that. Yes, I'm complimentarian fully in that one. Um, you know, I do remember when Emma and I first got married. <laughs> I don't know really why I'm telling you this. But um, when we first got married and we heard it downstairs and I said, oh, do you want to go? That wasn't my finest hour um, when I, I just asked. Whether, I mean, she didn't seem keen, so I went down instead. Um, that wasn't my finest moment. <laughs> but I just say that to say there's hope for all of you if you struggle with your masculinity. Um, there should be something in us as men that realizes I'm called to protect. I need to protect. I think we see that within marriage when there's noises downstairs and we go see what's going on. But I think we understand that in all of society as well. If somebody came running in that door in, that mo- in this moment holding a dagger, I think we would all find it a little bit odd if Riley was suddenly pushing every woman he could in front of him. We'd all understand what's going on with that. We instinctively know what is happening. We instinctively know that we need to stand in front as men because I've got to sort this out. We instinctively know. Why do we instinctively know? We instinctively know because that's the way God made it. See, we are different. We're instinctively different. But your masculinity, it not only leads, it provides and it protects women. And it does it in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. It differs. And so we're not talking about every situation being the same. I'm called to lay my life down for my wife in a different way. I'm called to lay my life down for others. It is unique. But nonetheless, there should be an instinct a benevolent sense of responsibility that I'm on here, whatever the setting is, that I'm called to be a man. The heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. And then women, what is mature femininity? This, this one is shorter. What is it for you? Well, once again, Dr. Piper, I think, says it the best. He says, at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Once again, then at the heart of mature femininity, this phrase signals that this isn't all that it means to be feminine, okay? There are other things that it means to be feminine. <laughs> I mean, we could take weeks of what it really means to be feminine, but I'm trying to reduce it down to what's at the heart of it. What is the thing, as we go running onto that volleyball court together, that makes us distinct? What's at the heart of the thing that makes us different? So there are many things that make Ladies, feminine, but it's never less than this. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition. I like the way Dr. Piper uses the word disposition there. Rather than a responsibility or a set of behaviors or rules, the reality is mature femininity will often express itself in a whole range of different ways, depending on the situation. And the specific acts, acts that then grow out of the disposition of womanhood vary considerably from relationship to relationship. And therefore, when you start going cross-cultural, cultural to cultural, it makes a very big difference. 
So we're not talking about here about acts or responsibilities, but a disposition, a disposition of heart. And it is a freeing disposition. It's something that will be good. In the same way God's given men with a benevolent responsibility, God's given women a freeing disposition, a disposition that will be helpful to them, that will aid them. See, if two ladies were to jump out of an airplane together, imagine the scene, two women jumping out of an airplane. They both jump at the same time. One is wearing a parachute. And she feels somewhat encumbered by this parachute. It's a bit sore on the shoulders and maybe not her preference. It's definitely not her image. It doesn't look the best thing. And so the woman next to her decides, I'm jumping out of a parachute, but I just want to be free. I'm going to be totally free. I, just, I don't want that chafing. I just want to be free. So she jumps out without a parachute. Who's actually free? Because the reality is gravity is going to take an effect. And the one who's actually free is the one that wears the parachute. She's the one that understands the law of gravity is just a fact, and I need a parachute on me. See, the thing I like about this at the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition. It's understanding that it doesn't start with how I feel about it. It starts with understanding that God the Father has my best interest at heart. He's helping me here. This is a disposition I need to have because it will go well for me. It will aid me in my life. It will be a good thing. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to what? To affirm, sieve, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men. Now, on this one, you have to look at that all at the same time, otherwise it doesn't make so much sense. But the strength and leadership that, that Dr. Piper is referring to here is what is described in point one as the responsibilities of mature masculinity. Mature masculinity to lead and provide and protect. That's what he's talking there about strength and leadership. And he's also likewise referring to the quality of that strength and leadership and through the word from worthy men. And that is a really important Statement. You see, I wouldn't want to give the impression in any way that femininity is a defined woman's response to men, whatever comes towards them from men. Because there is a time when a woman, whatever the circumstance, shouldn't be seeking to receive or affirm that man's leadership in any way. You see, sadly, given the nature of sin... Bad things happen. And ladies, if you are on the receiving end of a man dominating you, if he is abusing you, either physically or sexually, there's a time to run and leave and call the police and call your pastors so we can help you. Femininity is not second-class Christians. Femininity is about having a freeing disposition to, to follow and support worthy men. But where men are not worthy, you have to step away. And then people, that men that are worthy, will help you and will assist you. I wouldn't want you to think for a moment that femininity is a defined woman's response to whatever comes their way from men because quite clearly there is a time when strength and leadership from men is unworthy and is not worthy if you're receiving it or affirmation at all. 
but assuming that there will be people in your life where that is worthy, where there are men who, who love the Lord. They're not perfect, but they really love the Lord and they're seeking to be like him. And maybe they don't even love the Lord, but they're your boss at work and you see character qualities in their lives where you realize they're not Christians, but man, they're, they're actually pretty godly guy. And the way they're going about their life, it, it's very similar to this. Well, then he's, he's a worthy man. So how are you to respond to those worthy men? What does that femininity look like? Well, the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, to affirm that strength and leadership of worthy men. And ladies, I would want you to know that in all honesty, in our culture today, I don't think that's going to be easy at all. It's just not. And I fear for our kids even more. See, if a guy goes into a soccer team and says to his soccer mates, hey, yeah, we just have one of these marriages where why try and lead the home? And yeah, my wife just really responds to that and I'm so grateful. They'd be like, oh, mate, that's awesome. Congratulations, well done. But if a wife goes into a netball team and says, yeah, we just have one of those marriages where I just seek to really submit to my husband and follow him in every way, they'd be sending her for counseling. They'd be like, oh, you poor thing. Are you being oppressed? What's going on? What's happening in your life? What are, you, what are you thinking? Does he treat you like a child? I mean, There are natural things that people start freaking out about. And so I think for you ladies to generally affirm strength and leadership of worthy men is not going to be easy in our culture. However, it is the part that God's called you to play. And ladies, genuinely, I thank God for the way you do play it in Sovereign Grace Church. There's so many of you that I get to see up close and personal. I see the way you operate in your lives. I see the way you honor the men around you. You are modeling what this is about. You are bringing glory to the Lord. And I think it will be your affirmation that will be needed in our culture as time goes on more and more to model something different. You'll be able to do that in a way that men can't, I believe. The first part of Femininity, then, is having that affirmation of strength and leadership of worthy men. Also, to receive strength and leadership from worthy men. See, mature femininity gladly receives the strength and leadership of worthy men. The way a wife receives the strength and leadership of her husband, that screams the gospel and screams the glory of the Lord. When she's generally happy in her own skin, trusting the Lord and loving her husband, who in turn is seeking to lay his life down for her, and she gladly responds to him. That is not only a picture of the glorious gospel and the Godhead, it's a glorious picture of the church and the way it responds to Christ, which is what marriage is always meant to represent. The way a daughter responds to the strength and leadership of her dad. It says a lot, particularly when she's under 18 and living at home. It screams against a culture that says, I don't care what anybody thinks. It says something about, I trust God enough to help you lead me, Dad. It affirms something of his role in a glorious way. And you are modeling mature femininity in that moment for the glory of the Lord. And when a woman receives the strength and leadership of another man, whether that be in church or whether that be in the world or in the workplace... When he is a worthy man and a woman generally seeks to affirm and receive that, you're not only honoring him, you are worshiping the Lord in that moment. You're doing a beautiful thing because you're playing your part. You're playing your role. You're owning it and playing it for the glory of the Lord. 
For the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition than to affirm, to receive, and finally to nurture. To nurture strength and leadership of worthy men. I think this one is often um, not understood and left out because it can sound counterintuitive and can sound self-serving, but it's so needed. See, in Genesis 2 verse 18, it's clear that God made Eve as a helper suitable for Adam. Clearly, he just stank it out by himself, pretty much. You know, he just wasn't going very well. And so God made Eve, like, you're going to need a helper, sunshine. And the truth is, men need help, not only in receiving their leadership and affirming it, they often need it in nurturing it as well. Because you very rarely meet a man that's just completely confident in his leadership. He's just like, I got it! Most growth groups I've ever been in my life is with men saying, I just lack confidence. I'm not sure what I'm doing. I'm trying my best. But when a wife leans on her husband's leadership and says, I love you and I'm following you, that, that, that nurtures strength in him. That helps him and aids him. John Piper in the book, What's the Difference, says it this way. He says, this may sound paradoxical, that she strengthens the strength she receives and that she refines and extends the leadership she looks for, but it is not contradictory or unintelligible. There are strengths and insights that women bring to a relationship that are not brought by men. I do not mean to imply by my definition of femininity that women are merely recipients in relation to men. No. Mature women bring nurturing strengths and insights that make men stronger and wiser and that make those relationships richer. And so they do. It's a beautiful thing when a wife seeks to help her husband not only by affirming his leadership and receiving it, by nurturing it as well. And that goes to all of life. Both men and women, when we say to a young man, when he's stepping up to the plate to lead, that was good, well done. I think of Aquila and Priscilla in the way they were training this young man. They were helping him. Help him be the man that God called him to be. I think the way we position ourselves in kids' work and in youth ministry, when we help young men understand you're called to lead, and I thank God for the way you did it there. Did you see the way you did that? That was good. We all have a part to play in that, men and women alike. And when women do it, when you affirm it and receive it and nurture it, I would argue it has even a greater effect than when men do it. There's something distinctly feminine that men grow heaps when they know, when a woman says, I thank God for the way you led. I thank God for the way you lead our life group. I thank God for the way you lead our home. I thank God for the way you lead our church. Hey, I thank God that when we go out, you so often take initiative. I notice, thank you. That is so affirming to a man and will fan into flame what they also are called to. The heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. We understand that we have differing relationships, and so we all need to sit down and work through, okay, what is this going to look like in my life in differing relationships? And I ain't going to be able to help you in that, because the Bible isn't super clear all the time. But we need to get alone with the Lord and work out, okay, Lord, how can I do that? How can I do that in my workplace? How can I do that in my school? How can I do that in my home? How can I do that in what I'm called to in the spheres you've called me to? Now, at the end of this series, 
There's one more quote that I wanted to encourage you with. It's from Elizabeth Elliot. She uses it at the start of John Piper's book, What's the Difference? This is what she says. She says, For years I've noted with growing disquiet the pollution of many Christians' minds by the doctrine of feminism. I believe it is a far more dangerous pollution than most have realized, and I, with what seem to me pitifully few others, have tried to sound the alarm in every way that I could. She goes on then to thank Dr. Piper for his book and for the efforts that he's making to sound the alarm and teach people and help people. And folks, as I have the privilege of leading this church, this this has been my attempt. Because I genuinely love you. And this has been my attempt to sound the alarm and to help us see the emperor's got no clothes. The Bible doesn't teach what's out there. And we need to bow the knee to this. And there is so much at stake. Like I said at the start of this series, the authority of God's word is at stake. We can't be and sit in a church where just like President Thomas Jefferson, we just cross bits out the Bible because we don't like it or we don't feel it fits with our lives anymore. We can't. The authority of God's word is at stake on these issues. And a personal blessing is at stake. If we truly believe God is our Father, then he's not out to get us. He's out to help us. He loves us, as displayed at Calvary more than anywhere. And now he gathers us as his sons and daughters and say, hey, listen, listen up. I want to show you how it's going to work well for you. And God's glory is at stake. A glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in essence, but three in persons. That we're called to then bring glory to and point to, not only in the things that we're the same in, but actually in the things that we're different in for the glory of the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, play your part then for the glory of God. Own it. Don't run away from it. But as you go running on that pitch, own that part. Don't just try and play everybody else's part. Own your part and play your part. And may the glory of God then truly be seen. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are so kind to us as your children. You gather us round. You you know the mistakes we can make. You see the cultures we're in. I see you write us a word, a God-breathed word full of many books and many helps. But all God breathed so that you may care for us with each and every step of our lives. And Lord, I thank you that you've done that to us through this series, God's Good Design. Because that's what we've looked at. Your design. So Lord, would you help us ever increasingly to bow the knee to you and to trust you. Not to just run away because we don't like it or we just want to sit pretty in our culture. But Lord, as Christians who are called to take you not only as saviour but king, would you truly be our king in all areas of lives? Because we are your sons and daughters. So would we give our lives as sons and daughters alike to pointing to you because you're worthy of it all.